All right, and we are back. We are Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. We are Kevin Pendergrass and Lee Grant. And in this episode, we are going to look at a parable that Jesus delivered whenever he was asked the question of someone seeking to justify himself, the Bible says. Today, we're talking about the Good Samaritan. And this is one of those parables that is so ubiquitous and it's so well known that there are laws on the books that are referred to as Good Samaritan laws. This is a story that is extremely well known. It is extremely popular. And even people that have no religious predilection whatsoever, if someone stops to help them on the way, if they're late because they have a blowout and someone helps them change a tire, if they make it to where they're going, they'll say, oh yeah, some good Samaritan stopped to help me along the way. It's one of those ubiquitous things that everybody has a, at least a passing knowledge about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a story that for many years, at least for me, didn't have the depth that it now has for me because I didn't understand the cultural context. I didn't really understand who the Samaritans were. I had a general idea, but I didn't really understand the force of this parable. And I'm afraid a lot of Christians today, or at least some Christians today, don't understand the force of what this parable means either. And so when we look at this story, I I hope people will listen to this podcast. It's not going to be the most controversial topic out there, although we probably are going to bring up some controversial points, uh, as seems to be with every single podcast. But when you look at this story, when you look at this parable, there's so much there that we can glean from that I I don't think we do. I think that we just sometimes take it as a surface reading and we're, oh, just we need to be nice to people. And that's about as far as we take it. And while I think it's a good message to be nice to people, this story goes into much more detail and application than that. And so, Lee, because you have such a beautiful voice, would you mind reading this story and then we can break it down? It's Luke 10, 25 through 37. And feel free to read it in any translation that you would like. But I think that reading this first is going to help us understand the totality, and then we'll break it down from there and look at some different lessons that we can learn when it comes to who our neighbors actually are. Absolutely. In Luke 10, in verse 25, the Bible says, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, this has become my favorite translation. Uh, The Bible says, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he had came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. And like you said, there's a lot within the cultural context of that story. There's a lot of cultural packaging that a lot of folks don't really have a great awareness of. So I'm glad that we're doing this topic this evening. Yeah, so we're, we've, the way we're going to do this today in this episode is we've kind of made the format where we're just going to talk about some different lessons that we've learned from the Good Samaritan and break those down and try to really imitate the Good Samaritan. And further than that, even more importantly than that, understand why the Good Samaritan was called the Good Samaritan and the point that Jesus was actually trying to make. And why, while I believe that, uh, as I said earlier, it's good to come away believing that this story means we need to treat other people as nice as we can, I think it goes much deeper than that. And so I want to begin by looking at verse 25 and 26. Because it begin, it starts out, the story begins before even the story, before the parable. There's a lawyer that comes up to Jesus says, well, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And that question is oftentimes asked, you know, how am I justified? What do I need to do to go to heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in verse, in fact, let me, let me actually pull this up here because I want to have this in front of me as we break it down. But as I pull that up, the point I want to make is this is something about interpretation that goes overlooked because Jesus didn't say, take the clear meaning. Uh, Jesus, when, when he asked, well, what do I need to do? Jesus didn't say, well, you know the law, just take the clear meaning. Take a Facebook or Facebook, a face value reading of the text. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus acknowledged interpretation and Jesus acknowledged that people had different interpretations to the Bible and that a surface reading is not how one ascertains truth. Well, Jesus I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead man. No, 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 I was just... <laughs> Here we go. Well, go man, ahead. It's you just... got it. No, I was going to say I, that is such an important thing to consider because so often whenever we look at the biblical record, so often we look at it in terms of Judaism being this monolithic thing in which everyone was in lockstep with each other. You had different sects within Judaism. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Hellenists. You had whenever we went through our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, which we still have new downloads and people listening to those even now over a year after we recorded and posted those episodes. You know, you had the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai. You had different people that had different interpretations of the law. You had mm -hmm. different groups. And so Jesus said, well, this interpretation of the law that the Pharisees hold to, and specifically these Pharisees of the sect of Gamaliel, you know, these are the ones that ascertain, that have ascertained the truth and that absolutely know what the truth is. No, Jesus said, what does the law say? What's your reading of the law? And, and yeah, that's such he, an important point to make. Questions. He, yeah, he asked two questions. What does the law say or what is written in the law? And then he says, and how do you understand it? And the, and the word, in some translations say, how do you read it? And the word just simply means, how do you interpret it? If this shows that Jesus as a Jew and as Messiah knew that going to the Bible and reading it is not always going to provide the answer. 
Um, we, just knowing what's written in the law doesn't mean we, we know how to properly interpret it. And so there's a level of interpretation. Now, I want to also make this point here because we're going to circle back around this. The question is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have salvation? So that is the question that Jesus is going to answer. So when we're reading the story, we're reading this parable called the Good Samaritan. This is an answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life. And I, I think that for many people, that goes unnoticed because we get so enthralled with the story itself, we forget that the story is not just a story. The story is an answer. Yeah, It's an answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life. The reason why I bring that up because we're going to bring up an extremely controversial point here a little bit later. But the first point is just the fact of the matter is the Bible is a book that has to be interpreted. The law even itself, even though it was stated in a, 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 a law, boy, a legal fashion, sense, yeah. A, yeah, a, a legality, a legal system, it still had to be interpreted. Any, any points that you want to make on those two verses, Lee, in addition to that? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. Let's just keep going. Okay, so then verse 27 and 28, uh, even before Jesus summed up the law as loving God and loving people, it was commonly believed and understood among the Jews that the law was summed up as loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. This was the Jewish meta-narrative if we want to put it that way, and their fundamental belief. And we know that because when Jesus said, well, what does the law say? He didn't start just randomly quoting a bunch of things. He said, well, the law says that we have to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, and we have to love our neighbor as ourselves." That was what every Jew believed. Now, there were other facets to that, no doubt about it, but it was commonly believed that in order to, to be a Jew, if you want to look at the the law system, this is what the law was about. It was about loving God and loving your neighbor. So when Jesus comes and says that the greatest two commands are loving God and loving your neighbor, he actually was just reciting what would have been understood as common Jewish belief. A lot of people think Jesus in that instance is giving some sort of new revelation like, hey, what are the two greatest commands? Uh, you know, wow, Jesus is just putting forth this new knowledge here. Jesus was reiterating, these, these, are the, these are the two greatest commands that every Jew should know. You love God and you love people. And that's something I didn't know for a long time, Lee. I don't know if that strikes you as interesting or not, that that's something that are, always had summed up the Jewish law, even though they didn't do a very good job at applying it. And by the way, we don't do a very good job at applying loving God and loving people today. But that was their meta narrative as Jews. That's how they understood the law. Well, and I think his answer sums that up beautifully because that's his answer. I mean, Jesus said yeah. that loving God and loving neighbor on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I mean, he said that in another instance whenever someone asked him a question, you know, what's the yeah, greatest absolutely. commandment yeah. teacher? And he said, well, love God and love your neighbor on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's a, that's a famous statement that Jesus made, but that is the meta narrative that they live by. And we know that's the case because that's how this lawyer, this scribe, this, this doctor of the law answered Jesus's question. 
He didn't start by breaking down all 613 of the Mosaic laws and covenants and commandments and how all that was to work. Well, we need to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and we can't covet our neighbor's wife or house or donkey or livestock. And we need to be sure that we observe the the day of atonement and we need to observe the feast of booths on the appointed day and make sure we give our wave offering on. He didn't go into all of that. He answered that question whenever Jesus you know, answered his question with a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? What do you read? What do you find out of that? Well, love God and love neighbor. And mm-hmm. it, to me, that illustrates that point. And I've, I've always found it interesting that that's how he answered that question. Because even whenever I was still entrapped within that legalism, it's like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like, well, here's a list of the steps you take in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus doesn't answer that way. And he gives this answer of loving God and loving neighbor. And like you said, dude, we don't really do a good job of that today. And it's because it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And it's a lot. It's so much easier to make a list of things to do and steps to take and to check those boxes than it is to love God and love neighbor. It's way harder to do that. Well, and a lot of Jews did break it down. I think we see that in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler, where what must I do? And Jesus said, well, you know, you know the commands. And then he starts rattling off, well, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But all of those were centered around the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to sleep with your neighbor's wife. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill your neighbor. Uh, if, If you love God, you're going to love your neighbor because that's how we demonstrate our love for God is, uh, according to 1 John, is the way we love those around us. If we can't love those around us, then how can we say we love God who we've never seen? Uh, But yeah, I I just find that fascinating that Jesus, when he was asked, what are the two greatest commands? Or or actually, what is the greatest command? Jesus is the one who said the second is like it, um, love your neighbor as yourself. But he was asked, well, what's the greatest command? And so these were things that, by and large, it seems historically the Jews understood that still the system centered around loving God and loving neighbor. And Jesus had to correct them on what that meant a lot of times. And this is one of those instances. And so verse 29, the text says that he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked, who is my neighbor? And I like to, I like to put this point and describe it as putting limitations on God's love. Because that's what we want to do as Christians. It's human nature. I do it, you do it, this lawyer did it. Okay, I know I'm supposed to love God, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who really is my neighbor? I mean, I don't have to love everybody. I just have to love my neighbor. And it's so easy to put limitations on who we're supposed to love. But even the Bible in the Old Testament, even the law system, emphasized not only loving our enemies, but are loving their enemies, but loving the foreigner. And oftentimes the foreigner sometimes described as the alien in the Bible. It's not talking about real aliens, little green uh, people. It's talking about those who are foreigners, those who didn't live in the same geographical location, who were part of different nations or other nations. They, they were, it was commanded. The law commanded the Jews to love the foreigners And oftentimes the enemy and the foreigner went hand in hand because literally they were, quote unquote, foreign to us. And they were viewed as the enemy. They weren't viewed as our neighbors. They were viewed as the other. And we still do that. We do that in America today. 
we we it's 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 as all unfortunately so many Christians identify first as an American before they do a Christian. And because of that, it's easy to view everyone who is not an American as less than. Well, they're not as good as me because they're a foreigner. And even the word foreigner today almost has a negative connotation when people use the word foreigner a lot of times. Oh, they're foreigners. Well, they're not saying that in a positive light. They're saying, oh, well, they're they're not like me. But you see in the Bible multiple times. I mean, there's too many passages to read, but the Bible talks about the importance of loving the foreigner, loving our enemy, loving any and everybody. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7 says, if you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. Deuteronomy 10, 19 says, you shall also love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, I'm sure a book everybody's super familiar with because everybody studies Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah 7, 9 through 10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Lee, I want to point out something right here with Jeremiah 7 and, and Zechariah 7. You can remember this, Jeremiah 7, Zechariah 7, same chapters, just Jeremiah, Zechariah 7. It defines for us what it means to act justly and to render true judgments. And it, in, in, in order to render true righteousness and true judgment and to deal justly means to show kindness and mercy to one another, to not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor. Don't devise evil in your hearts against one another. And then Matthew 5, 43 through 44, of course, the famous passage, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, that second part in Matthew 5, 44, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, or excuse me, Matthew 5, 43, there's, scholars have, have looked and looked and looked, and there's nothing that says hate your enemy. The law does say love your neighbor, but it never says hate your enemy. So Matthew 5, 43 through 44 says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, it's interesting because that last phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that hate your enemy is never found in the law, of course. And scholars have looked over this and looked over this, and they've wondered, well, why did so many Jews believe that they were to hate their enemy? And what a lot of rabbinic scholars have concluded is the command to love your neighbor implicitly meant that you were to hate your enemy. Because if you were to love your neighbor, then that means you're not to love your enemy and you need to thus hate them. And so it was actually through what many today would call an uh, implication or a necessary implication that you're to hate your enemy. It's fascinating when you look at this context because how often do we come to the Bible and we see some sort of positive command or instruction that tells us what to do? And because we're told what to do, we come away with it saying, well, because the Bible was specific on who we're to love, that must mean we are not supposed to love our enemies. And so we're, we're supposed to hate our enemies because we can only love our neighbors. And that's what you have going on with a lot of these Jews. And that's why Jesus said, it's not just your neighbor. You're to also love everyone. You're to love your enemy. But the Jews, particularly this lawyer, said, well, okay, who exactly is my neighbor? And, and 
Well, in this sense, he's not asking, okay, well, who am I supposed to love? He's saying, who do I not have to love? That's essentially yeah. what he's asking here. Yeah. Who, who, who is your love actually not upon? Who, who, do, who do I not have to love? That's a great way of putting it, Lee. I've never thought about it that way. He's really not trying to figure out who he's supposed to love. He's trying to figure out who he doesn't have to love. Who, 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 who can he, you know, how can I wiggle out of loving everyone here? And the point Jesus makes is that ultimately everyone is our neighbor. And Jesus makes this in multiple different instances, but he's about to go on and tell this story. So we haven't actually gotten to the Good Samaritan yet. This is just the context leading up to the Good Samaritan. So let's recap, and then we'll get into the actual story of the Good Samaritan. So a lawyer says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what what, what, what does the law say? How do you read it? And he says, well, I've got to, got to love God. I've got to love people. Jesus said, well, that's right. Uh, and he says, but who, who's, who is my neighbor? I know I'm supposed to love other people, but who exactly do I have to love? What all other people do I have to love? And then now Jesus is about to go into this story. So the story begins in verse 30 in this parable. And Jesus, and, and by the way, Jesus does this a lot. Jesus very rarely directly answers questions. He, he could if he wanted to, but instead he tells a story to get people thinking. So verse 30 says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I'll go ahead and read verses, uh, I'll go ahead and read verse through 32. 31 says, when this happened, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw the man, but he passed by on the other side. And when I look at this, I think of how ignoring people in the name of religion is actually hatred disguised as righteousness. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's so easy to ignore people who either we don't like or who aren't like us or people that we disagree with or people who are in different situations that we don't think they should have been in. And instead of actually embracing them and loving them, we end up completely avoiding them. And we do so in the name of righteousness. Well, I'm avoiding this person because they're a sinner and I don't want to get too close to them. And we see this all the time with Jesus hanging out with the sinners and with the tax collectors. And particularly with Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus is uh, allowing the what we believe to probably be a prostitute, was washing the feet of Jesus. And when, when she was doing that, anointing his feet with oil, he said, you don't even know what kind of woman this is. If so, you wouldn't even be allow her, allow her to do that. So they believed in shunning people and avoiding people and ignoring people. And they did so in the name of religion. And as I said before, it's unfortunately, I think hatred disguised as righteousness. I'm righteous because I'm avoiding all of these sinners. And it yeah. gives us a reason to inevitably end up hating people. We may not actually say we hate people. In fact, most of the scribes and Pharisees would have said they don't hate people. But that's what it amounts to. And it's so easy. I think the story is powerful because it doesn't just say they don't stop and help, but it says they they passed by on the other side. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and, and some people say, well, they were already on the other side and, you know, it, this, you know, you're looking too much into this and they were just simply walking, but it says that they were going down the same road. And when they saw the man, they passed, he passed by on the other side. And so it seems to me that you've got a purpose, purposeful, willful ignoring of the situation. And we do the same thing. If we're driving down the road and there's someone that we see who's homeless or they're asking for money, what do we do? We tend to turn our heads. We act like they don't exist. And that is the worst form of how we can treat anybody made in the image of God is we act like they don't exist. I'm just going to ignore the problem and act like they don't exist. And they, they did it in the name of religion. Now, we don't know what all was going on. A lot of people have speculated that in this story, perhaps the point Jesus is making is they were on their way to the temple. They were on their way to perform their temple duties and their worship duties. And people have paralleled this to if you're on your way to church and you see someone who who uh, is in need, the, the Christian thing to do wouldn't be to go on to church and worship. True worship would mean stopping and helping that person. And I think those are some good applicable points. But either way, ignoring people is is in, in especially in the name of religion, in the name of doing the right thing, is never righteous. It's never the right thing to do at all. And I, I just think that Jesus used the religious elite because these were supposed to be the best of the best, the people who had it all figured out. Yeah. And yet they they walked on by. What what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's spot on. And there's another wrinkle that I had heard postulated, and I can't remember where I heard this. I may have read it somewhere. It may have been a commentary. It may have been a sermon or a podcast or or an audio book. I, I don't remember the source, but there are some who have postulated that these men crossed over onto the other side because the Bible tells us that this, this man who came down from Jerusalem to Jericho, who he fell among thieves, he was on the wayside half dead. And what that means is he was beaten, he was bloodied, and he probably appeared to be dead. And for a Jew to touch a dead body would render them unclean. Yes, and yes. The, I, I have heard that's interesting. Yeah. And the point being is that Jesus is also dovetailing in sort of a polemic against a legalistic interpretation that is, or a legalistic application that is devoid of love for neighbor. Um, these are people who, you know, should have rendered aid. They should have stopped. They didn't even stop to see if he was dead because if he's dead and I touch him, well, now I'm unclean and I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. Their, their ceremony was more important than the life of their fellow Jew who fell among thieves by the wayside. And to me, that's a really powerful point. Now, whether that's the case or not, I don't know. But I, I think that there's enough there to surmise that that could be the case, especially, you know, in terms of when when Jesus was accused of sinning by healing someone on the Sabbath. Whenever Jesus did those other things that we've discussed on this podcast before, where he healed someone who was sick on the Sabbath, where they did these other things, Jesus always put the good of others, their best good, and a demonstration of love above that ritualistic perfection that was found in the law. I think that's a fantastic point, and I have I had heard that before. In fact, I had forgotten it, so I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a absolutely fantastic point. That that it even and honestly, even if he wasn't dead at that point, um, because of the situation he was in, uh, could even be argued that it would have been to uh, to touch someone unclean. 
um, because at that point, what all had had happened, the situation that he was perhaps in. Um, either way you go with it, I think that that's certainly a possibility. I don't know if we can ever know for sure, uh, but yeah, that that would make sense that you have your religious elite being religious people doing what religious people do and trying to abide by the law, but missing the whole point of the law and the process because yeah. this this man couldn't be my neighbor because he's unclean and I can't, untu- I can't touch anything unclean because loving God means following the law. When in essence, they, for- they, they forgot that loving God ultimately is demonstrated through the love that we show for one another. Yeah. And then Jesus, he completely turns the entire narrative on its head by introducing the Samaritan as the hero. He completely flips the script on him next. Yeah, this, this is where I think the shock factor comes in in this story more so than anything, because verse I'll just read verse 33 through 35. It says, but a Samaritan, so he's contrasting a Levite, he's contrasting a priest. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he put on put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. These, these verses right here are powerful, man. They, they, they are so powerful. And one point that I want to first allude to real quick is that the text tells us this man was moved with Pity or compassion depends on what translation you have. The Greek word there literally means to be moved in the inner parts. It's something that we feel as humans for other people. And oftentimes, Jesus was moved with compassion. This is when Jesus uh, broke the law to touch a leper. And Jesus didn't have to touch the leper. Jesus could have healed him from a million miles away if he wanted to. But Jesus healed, and we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes, where Jesus kept the spirit of the law, even though he broke the letter of the law, the spirit of the law is is the true law. that's, That's the real law. And Jesus, out of compassion, out of pity, touched this man. And Jesus did a lot of things out of pity and compassion. In fact, if you study every occurrence, this word occurs 12 different times. And it only occurs in the gospel accounts, and it's primarily used to talk about Jesus, or it's used in stories and parables that Jesus tells. And there is not a single time, and I, and I want our audience to list, listen closely here, because this is such a strong, strong, strong point in my opinion. There is not a single time when someone acted out of compassion when, uh, or, or, or let me put it this way, there's not a single time when someone was condemned when they acted out of compassion. There's never yeah. a single time when someone acted out of compassion and they were considered wrong for doing so. It's ne- it was never wrong to do something out of compassion for your fellow man, even if it meant breaking the letter of the law. And that is huge. That is such a powerful point. 
Well, it's absolutely massive because it's the focus and I'm speaking for myself. I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody, but me, you know, from, from some years ago, the focus seems to always, or seems to strongly be placed on that ritualistic perfection and on doctrinal precision obedience. It's, Mm -hmm. it, it takes the gospel and condenses it down to a set of propositions and things that I do to make God happy. And if I do these things and make God happy, then I get to go to heaven. But if I were to act with compassion, I mean, I even heard someone, you know, preach before and, you know, you had made the point earlier that, you know, if anything, one of the applications that some have made is, is if you're on your way to church and you see a car on fire on the side of the road, you should stop and render aid. And if you don't, you know, do that instead of going to worship, I had actually heard someone say that if there's a car accident on the side of the road and you're on your way to worship, then you need to call, call the authorities, yeah. call 911, <laughs> but then you still need to go to church because your eternal soul is more important than that physical body, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, oh my goodness, are you serious? But you no, know, I, th- I think that's, that's a really interesting point. Whenever people act with the compassion and they act from a place of love and concern for the best good of their fellow man, there's no condemnation there. And that's a point that shouldn't be lost here. And that's what we see the Samaritan do. He has moved yeah. in his heart with compassion for this person who these people are enemies of one another. They hate each other. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew or partially Jewish. They didn't maintain that full Israelite cultural heritage because after Solomon and the kingdom split in two, you had the Israelite civil war and you had the 10 northern tribes, the two southern tribes. The diaspora took place. Assyria overthrew the northern kingdoms, and those people were scattered about. They were they were gone. Israel did not exist as a nation at that point outside of, of Judah, the two southern tribes. And it wouldn't be long before they would fall to, to Babylon. But in any case, these Israelites, once they were dispersed among the Assyrian Empire, they would intermarry and intermingle with the Assyrians. They were half-breeds. They were considered lower than low. They had their own culture. They had their own worship practices. The Samaritans were hated and reviled and loathed by the full-blood, pure-blood Jews. And it's even said in some traditions, this is a... um, and, and I. I hesitate to use this term, and I can't think of a better one right now off the fly. It's it's a kind of a, a Jewish myth, and by that I don't mean that in any sort of a negative sense. This is a a um, I, I guess you could say an apocryphal mythology. It's something that's said to have happened, but there's no real historical record for it. It's one of those oral traditions that's been handed down. Um, Anyway, the idea is, is that some 150, 200 years before Christ, that the priests gathered together at the temple and proclaimed every curse in the Torah and in the Talmud and in the oral law and everything that they could think of, over 240 curses upon the Samaritans. The Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans because they were half-breeds. They had no dealings with one another at all whatsoever. Yeah, and the, the Samaritans they did have their own unique copy of the of the Torah, the first five, the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, as well as their own unique system of worship and understanding of God. And according to Jesus Himself, their understanding of God and worship was far from accurate. In John four, when He's talking to the woman at the well, He says, "Well, the Samaritans they don't even know who or what they worship," and so they had an understanding of God, and they had the law. 
but they had a completely different understanding of who God was and a completely different explanation and, and interpretation of the law. And when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, that that is usually missed in our cultural context today because we don't understand the Samaritans. We don't probably know any Samaritans. We probably haven't spent a whole lot of time understanding the context of what a Samaritan was and how a Samaritan would have been hated. And the fact that Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero in the story is what is just mind-boggling to these Jews. And if if people are listening right now, this is what this would be equivalent to today. There were there was a man who was on the side of the road and he was hurt. He had been beaten up and he was on the side of the road and needed help. And there was a member of the Church of Christ who was an elder. And he walked by because he had an elders meeting he was going to. And there was a minister in the Churches of Christ and he was walking by. And he had a gospel meeting he had to go to and so he he passed by. There was a Muslim <laughs> who was walking down the street and saw this man and he had compassion and he took care of this man and he bandaged his wounds and he he took him to the to the nearest hotel and paid for everything and told the the manager that if there was anything else he would take care of it. Now if we were to hear the word Muslim there the Muslim is the hero in this story I think that that would shake us to our core because now that makes that 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 there's that's impactful. Samaritans aren't impactful to us because we don't understand it, but saying a Muslim in today's culture would be the same thing. In fact, in some ways it may still have even been worse to say Samaritan than even it would have Muslims because Muslims yeah, they have a general idea of God. Um but we would say they don't worship correctly and they don't have a correct understanding of Jesus Christ. But we're going to put a Muslim in this story as the hero and the one who showed love to their neighbor. Yeah. And I I just think that this is so powerful, man. Well, and that right there would be at the forefront of everyone's mind in Jesus's audience. And this gets into why I think this is a great example of why understanding the context of Scripture, not just the literary context, but the cultural and historical context are so important for getting everything out of the scriptures that you can. Because like you said, in our day and time, in general, unless you've heard this before, most people don't understand the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. They don't understand how much of a history was there and how much hatred there were between those two people. I mean, and whenever Jesus gets done with this story and Jesus says, who was the, who was neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves, the lawyer who came to him with the question can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan was. He doesn't even, yeah. he can't even bring himself to say it. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. And in my mind's eye, brother, I can see him saying that through gritted teeth under his breath with oh, that yeah. vein, that vein popping out of the side of his forehead and his skin turned a little bit red. You know, the one who showed mercy to him. He's upset <laughs> at this point because Jesus has taken all of this and has thrown all of that legal precision and self-righteousness on its head by making the Samaritan the hero of the story. It's, it really, it's, it's, it's a powerful, powerful, powerful story. And it would have been incredibly controversial in their day for Jesus to say something like this. Well, I was having this conversation with a a friend of mine, actually just a few days ago, last week. And I brought this point up to him 
and he's in his own spiritual journey right now, deconstructing a lot of things. He's he's an unemployed minister right now, and he is uh, going to be getting out of employed ministry in the future. In fact, that seems to be uh, the route a lot of folks are going. And um, you know, he said he he realizes he can't really be open and honest and vulnerable with the things he wants to teach, and so he's he's getting out of that at the moment. But uh, or he's looking for paths and ways to get out. But he and I were talking about this, and I said, yeah. I said, there's so many things that just come out of Scripture when you just sit, sit down and read, when you're not just trying to preach to an audience to get a paycheck, and when you're not just trying to to play church week in and week out. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but m- most employed ministers will even know exactly what I'm saying. Um, you know, you can really just study the text for what it is and allow it to lead you to wherever you want to go. If it's, I'm just going to see where this takes me. Let's look at the context and let's see what kind of conclusions can be drawn without me trying to fit it into a certain mold. And I brought this passage up as an example of one of those stories that I really never understood the depth of meaning. And I said, this would be the same thing as Jesus saying that a Muslim was the hero in the story. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, brother, back up for for a moment. He said, you realize the implications of what you're saying? (laughs) And uh I said, I think your response is the exact response that Jesus uh, received himself. Because I said, the, the question, once again, what is the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who does Jesus use as an example of how to inherit eternal life? A Samaritan, someone who didn't know what uh, even they worshipped or who they worshipped. But why? Why would God use someone like that as a hero? If you take the route and say, well, Jesus wasn't actually saying that this Samaritan was justified. If you say that, you miss the point of the the question. You miss the point of the whole story. Jesus would be uh, really being deceitful if if he was not saying this Samaritan had eternal life. He would literally be deceitful if that was the... um, the explanation, if we try to get out of the fact that this Samaritan didn't have eternal life, if we if we acknowledge that this story is the answer to the question, which teaches that this Samaritan would have eternal life because he showed mercy and he knew how to love his neighbor as himself, boy, this opens up a, a, a huge arena of discussion of, well, what does this mean for people who may not have a proper understanding of God and Jesus, but they love their neighbor as themselves? Can they still inherit eternal life. And that's why I said we're going to get to a controversial point here. Because if you look at verse 36 and 37, as Lee, you already wrote or read, Jesus looked at him and said, well, which one do you think showed mercy? He said, or which one do you think is justified? Which one do you think is, is showing love to his neighbor? Well, the one who showed mercy. And when you look at other passages in the Bible, Galatians 5.14 says, for the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing the right thing. 1 John 4, 16 says, and so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. I don't know how far to take this story. I honestly don't. And this was the conversation I had with my friend. I, I don't know what this means because I think there's other passages you have to bring into the table. Acts, we talked about Acts 17.30 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 and a host of other passages. Uh, John 8.24, John uh, 
those are still there too. And I think we have to wrestle with those. But if we're not willing to acknowledge that at least in this story, in order to have eternal life, you 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 need to love your neighbor as yourself. And he used someone who was as off-putting to the Jews as a Samaritan, someone who they didn't really have, they definitely didn't have a proper understanding of God and they didn't even know what they worshiped or who they worshiped. But yet they were still justified in the story. And this is a demonstration of how to have eternal life. Man, that that has some major implications on the not only the importance of leading with compassion and always making the most compassionate decision, but also with making sure that I'm fulfilling the law by loving my neighbor as myself. And, and, and I don't think that that means that anything goes and, you know, everybody's going to be saved just because um, I th- think there's a lot more to it. But I do think that this makes the conversation a lot more complex on who are those who really love God. Well, and man, one of the things that I have come to appreciate more and more as I study not just the scriptures, but the history of the church and that cultural context in which the scriptures emanate from, I'm I'm appreciating more and more the Jewishness of the early church. Because whenever you look at the early church, whenever it first began, it really started as another Judaistic denomination. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have your Pharisees, you have your Sadducees, you have your Hellenists, you have your Jesus followers. I mean, that's really how it started as a Jewish sect. And in in terms of Judaism, before the death of Christ, before Christianity would really come into its own, you had the Jews. Who are God's chosen people? They're the Jews. And, And this gets to kind of the point that you're making. And the point that you just made, you just kind of dropped a a 10 megaton bomb on me because that's something I've never considered or thought about before. But I think it's a, it's a, that's, Ooh, that rabbit hole goes deep, brother. Whenever you think (laughs) in terms of, uh, go ahead. I was just going to, I was just going to say, and that was the response of my friend. And, you know, and, and and look, that was my response when someone pointed that out to me, they're like, well, if if the question is who's going to inherit eternal life and Jesus answers with the Samaritan, what does that mean for us today? And yeah. when we look at, when we look at people who may not be Christian, but who has a general concept of 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 a God, and they show compassion and they love their neighbor as themselves, are they fulfilling the law by loving their neighbor as themselves? Are they um, obeying the law as summed up in one word, love your neighbor as yourself? Are they demonstrating that love? Do they know God, maybe not through an academic understanding, but through a love understanding that uh, they may not have the knowledge or the, uh, this is the example I used. Um, Before, I think a lot of people know God who, who don't know God. In fact, I think a lot of people know God and know, this is just, my understanding at this time. But I think a lot of people know God and know Jesus, but they really haven't been able to identify that's what it is yet. And I think we see this in Acts 17, where Paul talks about those who are worshiping the unknown God. He said, well, let me tell you who the unknown God is. (laughs) Paul's point is, well, you you technically are worshiping the unknown God. You just don't know who that God is. And he, he uses that more as an entryway to tell them about God. But I think there's a lot of people out there like this good Samaritan who actually knew God and and had a better understanding of what love was than these 
people who were high, high up on the religious elite academia ladder, so to say, before me and Bethany even met, before we even knew each other, I was writing letters to my future wife. And I wrote a handful of these letters before we even met. And I would just write about what I was doing that day or that week. I tried to at least do once a week. And I would write the letter and I would put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and then mail it to myself so that it was post postmarked. And I would I saved all those letters. And when I met Bethany, I continued to write letters. And then I started to put her name in the letter because I said, okay, now to Bethany, to my future wife. And then by the time we got married, I had all of these letters. And by the way, this is like, I got so many brownie points for this because this is the most romantic thing in the world. So when we got married, the night of our, our marriage, I gave her, or the day of our marriage, I gave her um, this box and it had all these letters. She's like, what is this? I said, I've been writing letters to you even before I knew who you were. And she's like, are you kidding me? You know, this is so, this is just so neat. And I, I know this is a, a kind of a far-fetched parallel, but the point that I'm making is that was Jesus not somewhat making the same point that this Samaritan maybe didn't really know God intellectually, ac- academically, but he he was serving God because he was able to love his neighbor as himself. Now, just like my friend, he accused me of taking it too far, and maybe I am. But I think that that parable is there for a reason. And I think that Jesus used the Samaritan in that story to say that the Samaritan was justified. and He would have eternal life, not because of all of his academic knowledge, not because he properly served at the temple. Jesus said the Samaritans don't know what they worship but because of the way that he fulfilled the law in loving people. And if we show love to each other, does that not indicate we do know who God is, even though we may not understand our, all the facets of that? Just fascinating, well, something something well, to, to think about. Well, and it is, and it brings to mind, and I, I think I, you and I had texted about this a few weeks ago, and a passage that comes to the front of my mind in this discussion, you may know where I'm going with this based on that conversation, is Romans 2. In Romans yeah. 2, you know, Paul's discussing how the law was was not enough and it's never enough. And he speaks of the Gentiles not having the law, but having a form of law. And in Romans 2 and 14, he says, when Gentiles who do not possess the law, and that's who the Samaritan was, when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a lot of themselves. They show that the law requires, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts to which their own conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them. So what you're saying there, and I'll just tell you just straight up, I, I think that the implication here, and just from where I am right now, I do feel like it may go a little too far, but it's definitely worth considering And at the very least, in my mind, it demonstrates that this idea of who's in and who's out is based on far, far more than a precision religious obedience to a law system. Because the Jews had that, 
and they fell far short of the mark. The Samaritan did not have that. Like you said, they didn't even know what they worshiped. They had their own law. You know, do we, you know, our, yeah, our people and- worship them on the mountains. Your people worship them in Jerusalem. Where should we worship? You guys don't even know what you're worshiping. And yet this guy's the one who's justified. This is the man who, according to what Jesus is saying and answering that life. question, he has yeah. eternal life. So well, uh, dude, and, and it's some, I was going to say, I just hope it's not a question that you're hoping to answer on this podcast because I have no idea, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and some, and some, you know, I do want to point out that they did have the law um, that the Samaritans did, but they had a a very different understanding of the law, and and you know, and that and that's where some have said, well, this would be more like doctrinal, you know, disagreements and, and things of that nature. But I, I I do think it would be more than just a doctrinal disagreement because I think this would be. You know, you're you're looking at so many years prior to when Jesus even came that these uh, this group of of people were established and they were considered an abomination um, by by Jews. I mean, they were absolutely hated. They were absolutely hated. And when you look at just people in general, you know, I I was just the same conversation with this friend. I I said that, you know, I've really changed not just my hermeneutic, but I've changed my whole outlook on how I apply the Bible and how I treat other people and how I come to my conclusions. Because if I'm faced with an opportunity to show compassion versus keeping what I think is perhaps the letter of the law, I think the Bible itself teaches that we need to always choose compassion. And yes. we need to make sure that we are that 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 is the the more powerful and underlining point of the law to begin with is whenever we choose not to have compassion in order to follow the law, I would argue you're not following the law at that point. And if you do choose compassion over following the law, then you are following the law at that point. And, and then, you know, you and I did a whole episode on that, but I, I want to go f- going forward for people who are listening. I, I want you to really think of this because this is something that I'm still studying. If you have any good resources that you would recommend, I would love to hear what you have read on this because there are still some passages that I struggle in reconciling um, some of what my conclusions or at least some of my probable or possible conclusions uh, with like Acts seventeen thirty and Second Thessalonians one seven through nine, I, I wonder how those come into play when you talk about these types of, of stories. But I, whatever conclusion you come to, this certainly has to be part of that conversation. And I, I would definitely rather lean into the point Jesus is making than something that Paul says. Not that I, I believe we should pit Paul and Jesus against each other, but just keep in mind, Jesus, Paul was trying to imitate Jesus in his life and in his writings. And so I think that's what we need to be doing too, is going straight to the source of Christ, just like Paul did, and try to be utilizing what we know about Jesus. And if this is a story Jesus told, I believe it is. And the question is, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And he talks about how we have to love our neighbors and fulfill the royal law means loving our neighbors, and he used a, a Samaritan as the answer. I don't know how else you can understand that. Then Jesus was saying that this Samaritan in the story was justified, and if the story, if the Samaritan in the story was justified because he showed love for neighbor, then I don't say how we could how, how we could say that it was just limited to a story and that has no outside application. 
Yeah. No, I see what you're saying 100 percent. And I definitely think there's there's some merit to what you're getting at. And I definitely think it warrants further study. Like I said, it's a 10 megaton bomb and it's blowing my mind a little bit, but it's incredibly interesting. And it's it's something that should get our attention. I think if nothing else, what we need to take away from this is that if we think that we've got it all figured out and that we have the will of God elucidated perfectly and we are applying it in our own lives as a measure of ritualistic, perfect, perfect obedience in full perfection and completeness, but we miss love and we miss expressing love for our neighbor. And our neighbor isn't just the person that lives next door to us. It's not just the person in our neighborhood, we might say. Loving your neighbor means you love your black neighbor. It means you love your Latino neighbor. It means you love your illegal alien neighbor. It means you love your, your Democrat neighbor. neighbor. <laughs> it means you love your Republican neighbor. It means you especially love your libertarian neighbor. It means you love your gay neighbor. It means you love your transgender neighbor. And I say libertarian because I'm libertarian, but you you love <laughs> your transgender neighbor. You love your Muslim neighbor. You love your Jewish neighbor. And dude, this is the this has been the hard one for me right here. You love your legalistic neighbor. You yeah, love your yeah. legalistic neighbor that thinks you are on a on a bullet train straight to the pits of hell because you approach God in a different way. You don't do God things the right way. They think that you that you're dead wrong in everything. And brother, that has probably been one of the biggest challenges that I have had is maintaining that love for those people that I know think that I'm hellbound just for the fact that I'm host, I'm hosting a podcast with you. I'm hellbound because whenever I observe the Lord's Supper, I drink out of more than one cup. I'm hellbound because I don't think it's a sin for my wife to cut her hair. I'm hellbound because I let my daughters wear pants. You know, all of those things and you can tell I'm getting fired up because it's it's dude it's hard for me. But loving your neighbor, if you do all of these other things, if like Paul said, if I give my body to be burned, if I speak with the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, if I do all this stuff, but I don't have love, it's worthless. It means yeah. absolutely nothing. All of the religion that you have, all of the lip service you give to Jesus and give to God, all of the things you do, the clothes you wear to church, the, the tracks that you hand out, the food you give to the homeless, if all of that is for appearance's sake and there's no love motivating that, it's nothing. It's completely yeah. worthless. Love is the highest priority that we see in scripture and that i think if nothing else no matter what the implications are that is one thing that we can absolutely take away from this parable love is more important than anything else yeah and a lot of people end up coming to different conclusions or they try to redefine love or they try to attach all sorts of different things to love in order to qualify love, just like this man was trying to do. Well, who who is my neighbor? What does it mean to love my neighbor? And we, we do the same things. We do the same yeah. things. But if we want to know what love is, we look to the example of Jesus Christ. He defines love. It, it would be one thing if love uh, was so convoluted just like it is in the world where one example and one definition is as good as another. But if as a, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus is my savior and Messiah and I'm a disciple of his, then he is the example I look to for what love looks like. And John even says, this is love in first John that 
uh, Jesus died for us. And if we want to know what it looks like, that's what love looks like. It looks like laying your life down for someone, not taking someone's life. And that's why when we look at other Bible passages and other belief systems, we have to compare it with what Jesus said love is. And I'm glad you brought up you know, talking politically for a moment, because right now, Satan, evil, um, the adversary, however you want to describe it, is having a heyday with uh, Christians in America, with dividing Christians to the point of literally hating one another for disagreeing, um, and, and politically, religiously, whatever it may be. And I, I just see so much hate right now, and, it's, and, and people feel justified in their hate. They feel like that's, well, I'm standing up for the truth, and I'm doing the right thing, and they feel like that's love. And when you redefine love to the point of it being hate, that that's a problem. That's when it's no longer love. And you're talking about those who are illegal uh, immigrants in the United States. And for some people, even legal immigrants are hated um, by, by even, unfortunately, a lot of Christians. And, and, and that view is, once again, Americans are better people. We're, we're the best. Everyone else, they're, they're not good like us. And I've unfortunately had far too many conversations with people not even talking about illegal immigrants, but just people who live in other parts of the world, the way they talk about them, the derogatory terms they use, the hatred, the vitriol that's behind their their message and their words and how passionate they are when talking about people who are different than them is so anti-Christ. It's so against what Jesus was about. And while some people want to take the word love and they want to inject it with with all these qualifiers. I think Jesus in this parable strips away the qualifiers and says this is love. Period. It, it, it's, it's, well, it's by the way, nothing was told in this story about the Samaritan um trying to convert the man or the man who once he was healed trying to convert the Samaritan, right? There was no there was no conversion story. That that's what's fascinating. The people who needed to be converted were the ones who were supposed to already be saved. Like that's yeah. that yeah. that's what's so powerful about this is it was the righteous people who needed to change. It wasn't the Samaritan, it wasn't the man beat up who could have deserved it. Who knows? But it was the it was the religious elite. They were the ones who needed converted to understand what it looked like. To fulfill the law, and there are just this this story this parable is one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because it's definitely changed my life. Well, it absolutely has, and I'm definitely going to need to do some more study on this and some more thinking on this, and really consider those implications that we've talked about. Because, brother, that's mind blowing. Like I said, that rabbit hole goes deep. That's that's hardcore. It. I'm, and to me, there's there's enough precedent there to warrant that that could be the case. But like you said, there there's a synthesis that has to come about with all those other things. But at the end of the day, what really matters more than anything else is love. On these two commandments, Jesus said, hang all the law, all the prophets, everything is summed up with loving God and loving neighbor. And that love of God is expressed, as John puts it, by demonstrating love for one another. And I, I think that's just, I think that's phenomenal. So before we sign off, you have anything else that you want to add to it, man? Any final parting words? No, I think it was a, it's a good discussion. I hope, hope it gives a lot of people some, some things to think about. It surely gives me a lot of things to think about. 
Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I think that's something that we all tend to struggle with from time to time. I know I still struggle with loving as God has called me to love, especially those that have injured me, especially those who think less of me. And it's a challenge and it's one that never ends. And I certainly hope that this episode will be something that'll help our listeners grow in that, that this will help all of you overcome those challenges that you face in loving others well. Because as a, a guest and friend of ours has said before on this podcast, he wrote a book about it, Love Matters More. And according to what Jesus says, it matters more than anything. So with that being said, we love all of you. We love you all very much. And we don't just say that because you listen to us week in and week out. We really do love you guys. Um, drop us a line. Let us know if you have any suggestions, if you have any words of encouragement, praise, or even hate mail. We'll accept that too. If you have um, any suggestions for topics, drop us a line. The email's always in the show notes. We love hearing from you every time you get a chance to give us a shout. Give us that five-star review on iTunes and stay tuned for more episodes. They'll be coming in the future. Thank you all so much.